Season 2 of World History Class with Mr. Lutz. And in this episode, we're going to tackle the period from about 1200 to 1450 CE. So at the top of the episode, it's about 1200. We've got human societies scattered all over Afro-Eurasia and the Americas. In Afro-Eurasia, those societies have been lately connected by trade routes that have both become stronger and weaker over time. Now the outcome by about 1450-ish, we've got greater connections within Afro-Eurasia, meaning more technologies, more goods, ideas, and diseases are being exchanged. And societies in the Americas have grown stronger and mostly improved connections between themselves as well. So how did that happen? So in order for us to understand how societies can make contacts beyond their own region, we got to have order and stability, meaning people need to be able to have more than enough food so they can specialize in other jobs and industries. But this also means people need to feel protected so that they'll feel secure when traveling a long distance over strange lands. So we've really got to establish this in this first episode, asking the question, what made these societies all stable and secure between about 1200 and 1450? So first with China, we've got this system of Confucianism that was developed in the 6th century BCE by Chinese thinker Confucius. So the main emphasis in Confucianism is to bring order and harmony to a politically divided Chinese society. And they're going to do this by stressing proper ethical behavior in all human relationships. So generally, it means the superior person in that relationship acts benevolently and the inferior demonstrates obedience do this, you get harmony. So once this is developed, Confucianism is going to find its way into Chinese homes, reinforcing patriarchy. It's going to make its way to education systems and government policies. By the time of the Song Dynasty, where our class really begins, we're going to get the brand spanking new Neo-Confucianism. So this is much of the same. It's going to address how do we create harmony in society, but it's going to incorporate more kind of, of spiritual concerns uh, by bringing in some systems of belief from Taoism and Buddhism. So China's government is going to be influenced by Confucianism. For instance, if you want a job in China's bureaucracy, you better have memorized some of the classic Confucian texts so that you can demonstrate your knowledge of them on a civil service exam. Pass this test, get the government job. And what this means then is that generally only the most educated Chinese are going to be the ones in charge of running the government. China's got a fantastic agricultural supply, and this is going to be due to something you're going to remember in this class, bear with me, called champa rice, which originates in Southeast Asia, and it could grow and be harvested several times in a single growing season. All this food means people can focus on other jobs. So industries like silk and porcelain grow really popular. And this makes China a trading hub where all these merchants throughout Africa Eurasia are coming to trade for goods that are in demand in their markets located all throughout the Eastern Hemisphere. All this attention China's getting, well, it gets the attention of China's nomadic and settled neighbors. Nomadic groups often raided China for agricultural produce and manufactured goods. 
But the Chinese, they tried to work out some agreements with these larger nomadic societies to get them Chinese goods in exchange for not being attacked. So neighboring societies, though, in Korea and Vietnam and Japan, they've got trade relationships with China as well. And they're going to start borrowing different aspects of Confucianism as well as Chinese Buddhism as it suits their own particular needs. So we got China. How are other regions like Dar al-Islam stabilizing and growing? Well, I'm glad you asked. In the 7th century, we've got a trader named Muhammad. And Muhammad claims to receive revelations from God telling him that he's to carry God's message to the world. So these revelations that Muhammad's going to receive are going to form the Islamic holy book known as the Quran. And the message he receives calls on believers to submit to one God, calls for a new era of social justice, and for people to forget their old tribal or ethnic bonds and instead focus under their religious bond now. We're going to get these five essential practices of Islam that become known as the pillars of Islam. These are reciting the belief that there's no God but God and Muhammad is his messenger, praying five times a day, donating a portion of your own wealth to those in need, fasting during the month of Ramadan, and making a pilgrimage or a hajj to the holiest city in Islam, Mecca. These beliefs ultimately define the faith of Islam. So tribes throughout the Arabian world quickly unify around these teachings. And within about a century, the Umayyad Caliphate has got an empire that goes, are you ready for this? From Spain in the West, across all of North Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, into modern day Iraq, Iran, all the way out to the Indus River, bordering modern day Pakistan and India today. So this isn't going to last forever. Eventually the religion is going to split into the Sunni and Shia factions. The Umayyads will be replaced by the Abbasids, but they're going to start the Islamic Golden Age. And by the time our course begins, though, the Abbasids are really kind of breaking apart. Turkic groups, the Mongols, they'll be involved in the region as well. But the message of Islam is going to continue to appeal to people all throughout the world going to bump up and coexist alongside Hindu societies in South Asia. It's going to replace Christianity in the weakening Byzantine Empire, in many parts of it at least. It's going to be adopted by political leaders of West Africa who can use the merchant uh, connections they have with Muslim merchants in the region to improve their trading contacts. And Islam's unity is really going to be helped out by the merchant community but it's also going to be helped out by their intellectual community known as the ulama. It's going to be uh, helped out by mystical practitioners called Sufis. Because these elites and these mystics are going to travel throughout the Islamic world, promoting not only the exchange of ideas and knowledge, but also goods and technologies. Sugar and bananas are going to start making their way around this network. So are the Chinese technologies of gunpowder and paper manufacturing. So... On to South and Southeast Asia. We've got Islam just unifying kind of the Arab world in the 7th century. But by that point in time, Hinduism had been defining developments in South Asia for almost 2,000 years. So Hinduism isn't a unified philosophy like Islam. It's rather this blending of traditions and beliefs from all these different groups over time. So it absorbs all these traditions and practices, and it gets people to kind of coexist alongside of each other, but it doesn't really help them politically unite. Hinduism is going to give us this social hierarchy that we call the caste system that can give people their meaning and their function, whether or not there's a strong centralized government. 
So centralized governments are going to be this hallmark of Chinese states, but in South Asia, it's more of an exception than a rule. And so without a centralized state, people often turn to the spiritual to derive a sense of meaning. So for instance, Buddhism is going to be founded by a Hindu prince who is really upset over all the suffering he sees. And this man who becomes the Buddha realizes that suffering is at the heart of the human condition and to overcome suffering is the highest form of realization. And this starts to build a philosophical system that really gets embraced by low caste individuals, but also merchants and missionaries who are gonna help spread this belief system into East Asia and Southeast Asia. So Hinduism is dominant in India, but like I said earlier, Islam's gonna make its way into Northern India, especially by way of the Delhi Sultanate. They remain for a long time, but not everyone converts to Islam. And it also doesn't mean that the Delhi Sultans have centralized control over the region. In the South, you've got another group called the Vijayanagara Empire, and they've got a Hindu kingdom during the same stretch of time. So we've seen states in East Asia, South Asia start to strengthen. States throughout the Indian Ocean are going to start to strengthen. So people start to desire to trade a little more. And so as trade becomes a priority, these states located along sea lanes in Southeast Asia are going to become more important because they can manage the flow of goods between these different regions. So you're going to have Chinese and Indian influence throughout these regions. Uh, for instance, one state uh, called Trivijaya is going to be a Hindu kingdom. And that's going to be on the Indonesian island of Sumatra. And next door on the island of Java is the kingdom of Majapahit. And they're going to be Buddhist leaders. But regardless of which of those states, they're kind of doing the same thing. They're controlling the sea lanes with a large naval presence that allows them to then profit off the trade that comes through. So over in Africa, we've got kingdoms that are also benefiting from trade. In West Africa, the kingdom of Ghana is going to be able to trade its gold for much-valued salt with Muslim merchants of North Africa. Might sound like an unequal trade to you, but salt is essential for life, and believe it or not, gold is not. <laughs> so these groups are going to make these trades that are going to help the kingdom of Ghana become stronger, and Ghana is going to be replaced by the Mali Empire, but they rely on the same exact trade patterns. Uh, but they're going, to, they're going to use their Islamic religious connections even more to strengthen ties with merchants stretching across the Sahara. We're going to learn about a leader of the Mali Empire called Mansa Musa, who's going to demonstrate his absurd amount of wealth that he acquires uh, during his voyage on his Hajj, his pilgrimage to Mecca. Remember those five pillars that we talked about earlier on. He's going to make this Hajj in the 14th century. More on that to follow. In East Africa, we've got a kingdom called Great Zimbabwe trading gold, but this time the difference is they're working with seafaring merchants from across the Indian Ocean network. So this trade allows them to build incredibly massive defense systems, uh, walls 30 feet high, 15 feet thick, completely out of stone, using no mortar to join them together. Oh, and it's the 15th century. Over in Europe, uh, the legendary Western Roman Empire is gone. The only state that really carries that legacy then is going to be the Byzantine Empire. And this time, that's kind of just found in and around modern-day Turkey. They had reclaimed some land of the Western Roman Empire during the 6th century, but by the time our course really begins, uh, around 1200, they're barely holding on to this dramatically shrinking empire. They've got a strong legal code, they've got Orthodox Christianity, but other than that, they're pretty weak in the area. 
So meanwhile, in Western Europe, we've got feudalism providing what shred of political stability is found in that region. So this decentralized system is all about exchanges. Nobles give monarchs political and military support in exchange for monarchs giving nobles land. Nobles would then give some of their land to knights in exchange for those knights giving military service and loyalty. Serfs, or the peasants who are tied to the land, they're ordered to work the land of the nobles, but in exchange they get their own food supply and protection from neighboring or foreign invaders, which, yes, are common during this time. The thing that dominates life throughout Europe during this era is the Roman Catholic Church. Think about this. The clergy is responsible for any sort of welfare, education, or record-keeping in a community. Religious leaders could exercise influence over political leaders of Western Europe. The Catholic Church could collect taxes from its followers. So all these factors combine to give Catholicism a ridiculous amount of power in Western Europe during this time. And of course, it would be abused at times. Christianity was divided by the 11th century and searching for a way to reunite. Efforts are being taken during that time to get Muslims and Jews out of Europe, and population pressures are making it harder for people to get land in Europe. And all these three factors are going to combine in an effort to recapture the Christian holy lands from the Muslim states that controlled them in what became known as the Crusades. But, long story short, these Crusades ultimately failed, but they did expose Christians and Europeans to long-lost and new ideas bubbling in that intellectual cauldron of the Islamic world. Rare commodities not otherwise found in European markets were there too, and this also sowed the seeds for greater trans-regional exchanges to soon come. So as many societies throughout Afro-Eurasia are growing in size and complexity, one nomadic group is stirring up Central Asia, and they're going to eventually help to strengthen trading contacts across all of Afro-Eurasia. And so the story of the Mongol Empire, we can kind of begin with Genghis Khan. So he emerges from relative obscurity and builds some small alliances, but then goes on and wins some significant military victories, and this allows him to incorporate defeated groups into his own tribe, ultimately bringing a once-divided region into a rare moment of political unity. So Genghis Khan, his sons, and his grandsons are going to go on to establish an empire, including China, Persia, and Russia. Taking advantage of this unique moment in history, where the Song Dynasty and Abbasid Caliphate were declining, and prior to Russian unification, the Mongols spread their influence and absorbed ideas from far and wide. By 1279, Genghis Khan's grandson, known as Kublai Khan, conquered China and established the Yuan Dynasty. Here, the Mongols took some Chinese systems of ruling and taxation. They improved infrastructure, they supported art, but they didn't intermarry with Chinese. They forbade Chinese scholars from learning Mongol writing. They ignored those old civil service exams, and they relied mostly on foreigners to run the government. Another of Genghis's grandsons, Hulagu, conquered the lands of Persia after destroying the Abbasid capital of Baghdad and massacring 200,000 of its inhabitants in 1258. But unlike China, the Mongols left governing in Persia to the local Persians, Many Mongols converted to Islam, and they adopted the lifestyles and language of the Persians. So after the conquest of various cities in and around the lands of Kiev and Rus, the Mongols established the Khanate of the Golden Horde, which is found mostly in modern-day Russia. Now, unlike both China and Persia, these lands were not continuously occupied by Mongols. 
Instead, the Mongols designated some Russian princes to collect and deliver tribute to Mongol leaders. These princes, especially those in Moscow, became more and more powerful, collecting more and more tribute and adopting many of the Mongol ways of life. However, Mongol control in all three of these regions was either eliminated or greatly weakened by the mid-14th century. The Mongols developed new techniques, new technologies, and new cultural practices from those they conquered. For instance, they learned the art of siege warfare from the Chinese and then put it to practice in Persia. They tolerated the religious practices of Buddhists, Taoists, Christians, Muslims that they conquered, and they developed infrastructure to support increased trade all throughout their empire. And this last development was most significant as it helped stitch together the Eurasian landmass through a network of exchange. So all these states are more stable, they're all more sophisticated, and they can sustain long-distance trade. So what's going on with the most popular trade routes of this time? The once popular Silk Roads had their golden age in the time of the Roman Empire and the Han Dynasty of China. But the establishment of the Mongol Empire helped to resurrect this network along with support from technological developments like saddles, stirrups, and caravanserai, which would house traders on their journey. So luxury goods like silks, mirrors, furs, amber, cotton textiles, spices, glassware, and other things are being carried across this route. Beyond goods, though, the network of exchange helped spread especially Buddhism and Islam, but also on the downside, it spreads the Black Death, and that's going to end up killing potentially one-third of Europe's population and do comparable damage in other parts of Asia. In the Indian Ocean, knowledge of the monsoon wind patterns and technologies like stern post rudders to help with steering, lateen sails allowing you to sail into the wind, and astrolabes to help positioning, they're going to help make voyages in the Indian Ocean network more manageable. Similar goods found along the Silk Roads are exchanged here, but also we're going to have East Africa with its gold, its ivory, and its enslaved persons entered into the exchanges. We're going to see the rise of Jewish, Muslim, Chinese, and Malay merchant communities along the basin. We're going to see the emergence of Swahili city-states grow up in East Africa, who can demonstrate all this power, all this wealth, thanks to their trade connections. And we're going to see the popularization of Islam all throughout the region, and it's still there today. In the Sahara Desert, that seems like an impossible journey to trek across, until you realize you've got camels to help with this work, and you've got camel saddles that not only make the trip more comfortable, they make it more profitable too, considering they can carry hundreds of pounds of goods on these saddles. So the big items up for exchange here, like I mentioned before, gold from West Africa, salt coming from North Africa, Ghana, Mali emerge powerful from this, and they're going to start to adopt Islam, which is going to help them strengthen their cultural ties and improve trading relations. So the theme in this unit has been states becoming increasingly larger, more complex, and in some cases continuing the tried and true ways of the past to maintain their stability. These political developments are going to promote greater economic exchanges because now these states can specialize in the manufacturing of unique items, they can secure merchants in their lands, and thus promote long-distance trading relationships with neighboring or distant states. So let's see how much of this holds true in one area of the world yet to integrate into that larger system, the Americas. So by the 14th century, we've got the Aztecs establishing their capital city of Tenochtitlan, which is today's Mexico City. They're going to build aqueducts. They're going to build floating gardens known as Chinampas. 
to help them sustain a growing population. They're going to develop a military that conquers neighboring tribes and incorporates them into this really forceful trade tribute system that's managed by the military, but ultimately collaborates with local officials. Human sacrifice is also going to help keep subject peoples fearful, needless to say, and under control. Trade spans throughout this empire. It's going to be performed by professional merchants called Pochteca. They're going to exchange anything and everything. Food, precious metals, stones, exotic shells, feathers. If it's around back then, the Pochteca are trading. And to the south, the Incas are controlling the region of the Andes Mountains. Their empire had been built through the conquest and incorporation of local tribes into a larger empire. And this empire, in order to be controlled, is split into different provinces, and it's going to be managed by a government and a bureaucracy in each province. Those who are conquered pay tribute by serving the empire in a system of labor called the Mita system. Though the difference here is, perhaps maybe due to its geographic isolation, there's not going to be much long-distance trade between the Incas and other states. And this is happening in spite of a massive road network that was built throughout the Mita empire. So remember, in conclusion here, by about 1450, we've got more connections within Afro-Eurasia leading to more goods, technologies, and ideas, and diseases being exchanged. And this is all the result of these more sophisticated, stable, and efficient states. And we've seen states in the Americas grow stronger and mostly improve connections between themselves as well, but they're going to remain isolated from the rest of the world. And with that, I hope you enjoyed the return even if you were unaware that this is even a return. If you found this episode useful and you want to express your thanks, please check out the PayPal link in the episode description. Until next time, take care, everyone.